Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. If you don't know Sarah Giroza's music, you have homework, and I'm pretty sure you're going to love the homework. Start with her song, Johnny, one of the finest songs I've heard in years. She has a contemporary sound, but is right at home with previous generations of singer-songwriters whose work she covers and adores. Sarah Jarose is standing on a lot of shoulders as she creates music that's heard around the United States and Europe. There are the early teachers and players in her small hometown of Wimberley, Texas. There are her professors at the New England Conservatory. And there are musicians who she grew up listening to, Austin's Sean Colvin stands out, who now asks Sarah to tour with them. So I started the conversation with a quote from another great musician who toured with Sarah and Sean, Mark Cohn. I toured with Sarah for a couple of months earlier in the year as sort of a trio with Sean Colvin. Sarah was magnificent every night as an artist, a singer, a writer, and a human. Doesn't get any better than Sarah. I adore her. Mark Cohn. Aww. Jeez Louise. <laughs> so when I reached out to Mark uh, a couple of days ago to ask about you, Mark, who, by the way, this is not pertinent to this conversation, but we have the exact same birthday, July 5th, 1959. I love that. So always a soft spot for Mark, aside with the great music. Um, when you tour earlier in the year with Sean Colvin and Mark Cohn, uh, people whose work you admired and whose work affected you is there a way as a musician you can describe what that's like with yourself having been in the biz now for quite some time well it was it was absolutely amazing i think i was sort of pinching myself all along the way um because as you said i mean in many ways i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing without their music um I, especially Sean, you know, in, in the early years of growing up in, well, Wimberley, but outside of Austin, uh, Texas, you know, Sean living in Austin, she was just always, always on my radar. My, my parents went to UT and used to go see her uh, in a club called the Cactus Cafe before anybody really knew sh who she was. So there's this long history that I have in that sense with with her and then you know over the years simultaneously learning about mark's music and just loving his albums and loving his voice and then we all have the john leventhal connection as well um which was something that kind of tied us together for this tour in a way um and yeah i just think it, it says a lot about them as humans that they were willing to tour with me who's who's much younger and you know i could see some people thinking like oh, i don't want to let's just tour with one of our buddies you know we don't need to bring someone someone new into the mix um so it was a massive honor and in another regard it felt totally totally natural and normal because um you know they're just such great performers and i think our music because they're in because their music informed me so much i feel like my music kind of fit in uh, right alongside theirs in, in that sense and it was i learned a lot it was it was really special when you say why wouldn't they just take one you know one of their friends or maybe 
contemporaries, uh, I would respond with that old New York expression, you ain't exactly chopped liver, you know. Uh, but is there a point where maybe early on where you have to kind of say, okay, look, it's great to be on tour with them and they're wonderful, good people, great musicians, but, you know, I belong here and I, I can't approach the performance with a sense of awe because that might take away from my performance? A bit. Yeah. I, I think I would be lying if I didn't say that there was some of that, you know, and I think, um, yeah, it's almost like out of respect to them, I need to be confident in my own ability on stage with them to sort of create um, a, a cohesive show together and to have it feel um, as as equals in a way. Um, you know, obviously this is all said with what I prefaced it with, which is that they're massive heroes of mine, but they, I credit them with creating a, a space and an environment and an energy that allowed me to, yeah, to feel like I belonged and, and to feel like, you know, I was, I was supposed to be there with them. Do you at all allow yourself at this point to start to think that there are maybe 14 or 15 year olds out in the audience who now will look at you like you look at Sean Cole? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, those are the best moments ever. I mean, I, I, I feel like over the last, the last couple of years, especially, there's been some youngsters who will come up to me after shows or, you know, their parents will kind of drag them over. But I can tell, <laughs> I, I can tell that, you know, there's a light in their eyes and it's a good reminder. You know, it's a good, it, it reminds me of, where I was at one point and, and, you know, just having so much hope and so much excitement. And uh, so, yeah, in a way that, that would be like the best thing ever. If, if somebody thought of me, thought of me, like I think of Sean and Mark. You have a new album coming out. Uh, there's a great line as a diehard Beatles fan. There's a great line in the Beatles anthology in 1995, where Paul McCartney is talking about the song, early song from me to you. Mm. And a particular part of that song, like, Oh, I liked the bridge because we had never done that before. And it meant that we were doing something different musically at this point in your career. Do you still find that there are things in your songwriting that oh, I haven't really tried that be it consciously or just kind of came about are there still things, uh, uh, territories that are uncharted, so to speak, that you're, you're trying to uh, swim in, for want of a better term? Yeah, very much so. I, I feel like this this album, um, this new album for me, Polaroid Lovers, is a lot of that, is a lot of swimming in new territory. And I think I've always, I've always tried to be the type of artist who... Um, you know, I, I never have wanted to box myself in. I always just naturally listen to a lot of different things, a lot of different styles. It, genre is tough for me in a way because I don't feel like I fit neatly into a genre box and I kind of like it that way. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, with this album and, and with all of my albums, really, I, I always feel like I'm trying to push myself beyond something that I've done before. And, um, I think maybe in the past where I might have been dipping my toes into new sounds or new sonic territory, I feel like with this album, I was just like, I'm just going to jump all the way in and see what happens. And 
uh, it was really fun and I'm, I'm really excited about the results. And if anything, it's just a good reminder to always keep doing that and, and to not ever have that sense of arrival in a way, if anything, the, the goal or the reward is to, to keep doing it. And that there's, Mm -hmm. there's not a finish line, so to speak. Names are not necessary, but are there people who love you and respect you involved in your career who either subtly or not so subtly say, Oh, you know, in terms of putting someone in a box, Oh, those songs that you've done really seem to work. And, you know, the, the whole notion of an artist, you know, Hey, can you write some more of those songs? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, I feel pretty lucky that I, I don't, I don't really feel that pressure. And I think I've, I've been fortunate to, from the very beginning, uh, be surrounded and surround myself with people who don't think about it in, in terms of that. Oh, you did this thing. So you have to do more of that. Um, you know, some of my, my earliest, uh, musical heroes like Tim O'Brien was a big one. Um, obviously Nickel Creek, uh, Gillian Welch. These are people that all maybe on the surface, you could easily say, you know, folk, bluegrass, acoustic, what have you, but they're all pushing, pushing limits and, and kind of, you know, bending, bending rules. And, you know, I, I, those are, those are the people that I looked up to when I was nine or 10. And I think those lessons are lasting. And so thankfully I don't, I feel like I can answer your question honestly in that I don't, I don't feel pressure to, to keep doing the same thing. And I, I feel like I can just explore and just, you know, be, and just honor the songs and what, what the songs want and how they want to be, to live. You've worked with really good people right from the start. And you mentioned one, a favorite of mine, Mr. Leventhal, who, uh, and I'm not just saying that because when I did a profile of him for a New York TV station about 10 years ago, he let me play guitar with him. Hmm. And we sang a couple of Everly Brothers songs, but m- mostly it's about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, he's a, he's a wonderful guy and obviously tremendously talented. So in that experience, when you walk in, and again, you've already established a pretty wonderful body of work. Um, what's that interplay like? You know, you're working with someone who's got a reputation. You yourself have a reputation. How does that meeting of the minds kind of come about? I think I'm, uh, well, it's very much going out on a limb in a way, you know, I, I, I think I had to sort of work up some courage to ask him if he would, uh, if he would produce my album and, um, because I just have so much respect and, you know, we, we had met and, and ran it, you know, ran into each other, but ultimately you have to kind of get a vibe with a producer to know if it is the right, even if I wanted him to produce, you know, after sitting down for a few hours playing music, we could have both walked away and be like, you know what, this isn't the right fit. Thankfully it was very much the right fit. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of related to what I was saying about Sean and Mark in that there's a giving and a letting go of your ego when you're collaborating with another musician. Um, and when, when you're tr- really trying to get to the gist of like pure musicality, you kind of have to leave 
the stuff that you're talking about, like, well, he's established and I'm established. And so we think about each other this way. You kind of have to leave that at the door, you know, and just focus on the music. And um, I really felt that I try to work with people that, that are that way and that create the space for that. And John, I just cannot say enough good things about John Leventhal. I think he's one of the greatest and deepest musicians to ever exist. And uh, on top of that, he's just a wonderful guy. And um, I feel like I really learned a lot about songwriting over the course of making that album. And in a way, it was a lot of the, the lessons that he taught me and kind of shifting my thinking a little bit and perspective that allowed me to make this record you know it's just like anything it's like the the, st the things that come before are the are the stepping stones to allow you to do what you do now you made a terrific record thank you growing up in the town of wimberley uh is there a sense of oh this is a, a really cool place to grow up or once you get the music bug is there a sense of oh i'm you know as soon as I can, I'm, I'm going to Austin, I'm going to Nashville, I'm going somewhere, that's where the action is, or was it a town that had enough musical action to keep you really intrigued as a, as a, as a kid? It was both. Um, I mean, thankfully, it was, Wimberley, I think, is very unique <laughs> to, uh, in, in terms of a lot of small Texas towns, in that it did have a very uh, vibrant music community. And um, uh, I was just so fortunate to find that so early on. There was this, um, and I credit that to my parents, but also to uh, a fellow by the name of Mike Bond, who was the ringleader of, of the Friday Night Jam that I went to every, every Friday starting um, nine, almost 10 years old, uh, went right, right when I got my first mandolin. Um, and it was just one of those things where had, had that experience not been as welcoming as it was, who knows if I would even still be doing this now. It, it, it left a lasting impression. And, you know, as a kid, I, it, it was just fun. And I think that that was something that was, um, that I think was why it was lasting is that it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of pressure around it um, from an early age. And it was just something that was fun to go do every Friday. Initially, did your parents say, Hey, we're going to go to this jam on Friday nights, or did you learn about it? And you said to your parents, Oh, by the way, I'm going out Friday night to this jam <laughs> work. Please, please drive me over to the jam Friday night. I think they heard about it. Um, you know, I was so little, I was, you know, I was nine, almost 10. Um, but it always felt, it never felt like a, a stage parent thing. It was just, they were music lovers. I was into it. I was excited about it. And we just sort of all found it at, in the, in the, at the same time. Um, so yeah, in that sense, there was a lot that Wimberly had to give, uh, in terms of creativity and inspiration. Austin being so close it wasn't in a way it wasn't even like it was this separate thing it was just easy enough to go whenever there was an event that um that i wanted a, a show thankfully yeah and again i owe so much to my parents and i think i got lucky that they're just massive music fans and already mm -hmm. would have prioritized seeing live music um 
so they never hesitated to take me to to drive the hour into Austin and, you know, take me to shows and stuff. Um, but then, you know, just natural teenage, teenage uh, feelings, you start to kind of get curious about what, what else is, is out there. And I, I kind of started having the opportunity to go to a lot of music camps outside of Texas. And that was really where I got to meet people my own age who were interested in, in what I was doing. And is there a seminal moment or a, a time maybe when you're in high school, when a decision is made, a conversation is had with your folks, as in, oh, this is it, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going for this. I suppose it would have been um, when I signed my first record deal. That that was when uh, it felt like it kind of got a little heavier, you know, or, or there was... I had to hire a lawyer to sign a contract and, you know, that, that sort of stuff. It, it became more of a, a conscious yeah i do think i do think maybe there were there was there was a conversation and they kind of said like all right this is this is getting real now like do you <laughs> do you wanna, do you really want to do this you know because you're signing this contract and i was 16 i mean i was so young um but i don't know it just all felt it all felt right it, it, um, a huge part, I have to credit Gary Pachosa, who I made my first four albums with, and who was the reason that I signed, that I got a, a contract offer at 16. Um, I have to credit him with making it feel very organic and non-threatening uh, to a 16-year-old. He really respected my parents. My parents really respected him. And I think at that age, had that not existed, there would have been a bunch of red flags, you know, go, getting thrown, uh, going up. And mm. um, he he kind of almost became like a second father figure to me at that time when we were making those, you know, I recorded my first record, started coming here to Nashville when I was 17, really in, in any breaks during my senior year of high school that I had. And uh, that was a big step. I think at the time I was just excited to be out of the house and excited to be traveling. But looking back now, you know, I think it was, it was a big thing for my parents to, to let me go that early and, and to kind of, for me to be out of the house that soon, that often making, making records. And, and so, yeah, I credit Gary a lot with, uh, easing that transition uh in a really organic way were your folks plan b types like hey you know this is great and you're very talented but you you might want to have a fallback you know that kind of thing yes in the sense that they were really keen on me going to college uh, you know having signed the the deal at 16 and, and making my first record before college i do think there was very much this time of like well, do I just go right out on the road and, and do this thing? Or do I go to college and have this kind of buffer for years of kind of trying to, to, to be an, a normal kid and, and have that normal experience? Um, so they were, and they're both teachers as well. So they were super, <laughs> super keen on, on me finishing graduating from college. I mean, yes, I went to a music conservatory. Uh, so it's not exactly like normal college. Um, actually, in fact, we joked, I went to New England conservatory, NEC, 
And people often joked that NEC stands for not exactly college. (laughs) (laughs) And these are friends of yours. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's Um, great. Yeah. So my parents, they were, they were definitely keen on that. But other than that, they were just all pro music all the way. I've read where you, you've said, uh, I wanted to preserve a little bit of myself by not becoming a road dog at 18. Is that something that you kind of came upon yourself in terms of the thinking or did people around you who you respected kind of advise you, you're going to have a long career if it starts now versus starts at 21 or 22, it'll still be fine. Yeah. A little bit of both. I think a lot of my, a lot of the friends that I had made going to music camps um, in my teens were moving to, to Boston, whether it was Berkeley or NEC. <clears throat> so I was sort of following that community and wanting to not miss out on that experience and that um, kind of friendship, the friendships that I had forged through music and having four years with them. And, and, and yeah, I think kind of subconsciously I thought, I don't know if, if I go out on the road at 18, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to pan out and I might burn out um, way too soon. I think also I, I remember I was not a part of this conversation, but my parents told me later that Tim O'Brien actually called them and basically in so many words said the same thing, kind of saying, look, the music business is a crazy thing. And especially the touring life is can be really challenging and can be really hard. And he was just kind of warning them, kind of giving giving some advice, saying, I would encourage her to to go have this time in Boston and not not get burnt out on the road at eighteen. So I'm obviously very grateful for that looking back. So you head off to the New England Conservatory in Boston. Uh, are there people in Texas, you know, friends of yours in Texas who are like, wait, wait, where, where are you going? What, you know, you're going all the way up there or did you get a lot of support for it? I got a lot of support. I really, I, yeah. I mean, Wimberley is a pretty amazing place and maybe there were some people who, who didn't understand, but my friends were just so supportive and so so like cheering, yeah, cheering me on, like, yeah, you can, this is, what else would you be doing? Like this, this is the clear path. Uh, so it's pretty cool. And when you get there and once you get settled, I'm going to presume there are a lot of very talented musicians there uh, and you're one of them. And so is that how you felt or is there any moment with that, no matter what college we go to or what field we're pursuing, uh, I've talked to a lot of people who like, you know, can I do this? Am I going to make it here? Is mm. there uh, moments of doubt in the early years at, at school or was it a pretty good fit right from the get go? I would say it was, I felt really at home in that community and I didn't, I didn't question my, my ability or or reason to be there, really. I think sometimes I questioned if I could do it all. Uh, Those four years were, I mean, I don't really know how I got through them when I think back on it. It was, there was never a day off. I mean, it was, 
I would say one of the biggest differences between Berkeley and NEC is that a lot of my music friends who went to Berkeley, it seemed like they could kind of leave for weeks at a time and that was fine. And they could sort of go, go on tour and go play shows and come back and catch up. That was not the case at NEC. I mean, it was very, very much a, like you had to get permission every time you left for, I think the longest I missed in all four years was a week. I, I went and did a, a show called the Transatlantic Sessions, um, which is a BBC show over in the UK. And it involved like a week long taping. Um, but otherwise all the records that I was making, all, everything, all the writing, all the performing was just happening on the weekends, I would go down to New York to play shows. I would take the bus, like the, the Chinatown bus down to, to New York. Uh, a lot of weekends I would, yeah, spring break, winter break. I was usually coming here to Nashville to record. So some about halfway through, I would say after my sophomore year, I had a moment where I thought, well, if I'm going to leave, it's going to be now because I'm not going to get through my junior year and not just finish one more year, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I, I had, I had some doubts. I had, I wasn't sure if I could do it all, but I will say like the last two years of college became the curriculum shifted more to be focused on the music that I was writing anyways. Um, and so that kind of helped, helped that balance. I have to imagine that it helped your time management skills. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very much, very much. It, it really made me uh, grab onto the phrase one day at a time. I'm always fascinated by people who are in positions that 99.99999% of the rest of us will not be in, regardless, again, of, of, of the work that you do. And um, I spent a lot of time in my college dorm. I never got a phone call hearing that I got a Grammy nomination uh, while I was lying around in my college dorm, shockingly. Um, <laughs> what year was that? And what do you remember from the experience? That was my freshman year. Uh, I was living in the dorm. You, you were required to live in the dorm freshman year at NEC. Um, yeah, and it was absolutely the most unexpected thing of all time you know I shared it was a I lived on a co-ed floor um and I shared a tiny little room they were very very small dorms um and my roommate was in the room it was in the evening I remember it was like around dinner time and this was also like before iPhones I, I had like a flip phone you know it was it was still in that gap it wasn't fully like uh communication is happening by a phone all the time so i i got a text on my flip phone from my pu then publicist at the time saying congratulations on the grammy nomination i think she didn't think that she was the first person to deliver the news <laughs> <laughs> and i said what <laughs> and i think i screamed I, I definitely screamed and then a bunch of people came to the room and uh, it was this very celebratory uh, thing then. Everybody was very, very sweet and excited for me. And um, yeah, it was just absolutely a shock. Talk about a great line to have as a freshman in college. Yeah, I was, <laughs> How are you? I'm fine. I got a Grammy nomination today. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. Um, was there a course at NEC that really... Uh, kind of blew the top of your head off 
in terms mm-hmm. of the notion of music and wow i mean i'm i'm a good musician but this is opening my head to a completely new thing yeah there was a lot of that i guess it would have to be um my class with ran blake uh i think it was called primacy of the ear uh ran's whole thing was New England Conservatory is obviously a conservatory. It's mostly classical musicians uh, reading music. Um, you know, the, the part of the school that I was in at the time was called Contemporary Improvisation. I think it has a different name now. I'm not actually, I can't remember what it, what it is now. But, you know, it's kind of started as this idea of, they called it, Gunther Schuller called it third stream and this idea of classical and jazz idioms merging. And then that sort of created way for their, this idea of folk music to be studied in a conservatory setting. Anyways, I say all that to say that Rand Blake was focused on getting off the sheet of paper and just focusing on ear training, um, which is always what I had done. You know, I learned music that way in a jam, you're learning orally, you're not staring at the sheet of music. But Rand just took it to this whole other level um, where I feel like he really challenged my sense of harmony and my ear and the the types of of melodies that I was having to learn by ear, like Abby Lincoln and Brahms and even some like really deep cut Michael Jackson songs (laughs) that sort of have these crazy harmonic turns. Um, That class really stands out and Rand stands out. Um, but I would be remiss to not also mention Hankus Nutsky and Dominique Eid uh, and Joe Morris, because they were um, also just incredible teachers while I was there. You're standing on a lot of shoulders. Indeed. I'm always fascinated with an artist, be it a musician or a writer or an actor, with the question, do you know when you have something good? And for this conversation, let's use the example of the song Johnny, Mm. which is a wonderful song. Thank you. Just great. Thank you. And so is it all a mystery or do you have some sense when you're creating like, I think I got something here? I think there is usually an unlocking moment that happens and it's not always in the same it happens in any man, any number of ways. Um, and it's especially different if you're writing by yourself versus if you're writing with other people. Um, but I think I had, when I had that chorus and the chord progression of the chorus, I think it was just like one chord. I was, I was trying to sort of get that chord progression to, to link with the vocal melody. And I I just finally got to one of those chords and it was like the unlocking moment where it was like, once I put that chord after the other chord, I thought, okay, I have something here. And, and then I have to credit John uh, as well, because I think he heard when I played in the chorus, he, he had a real moment of like, whoa, that's, that's really cool. That's not like anything that I've heard before. Um, but then he has this brilliant way of like connecting things. And so he was able to really help me arrange to make the chorus not feel like this island uh, on its own, um, but to make it like fit with the rest of the song. So 
yeah, those moments, those, those aha moments are probably like the best part of being a musician because you never know when they're coming, but you're kind of searching for that all along. And uh, so when they happen, it's, it's really fun. You referenced some of your teachers and some of the classes at uh, the conservatory. Are there lessons learned from those years or even earlier from the jam years growing up in Texas, either musical lessons or lessons beyond the world of music that have a tangible effect on the work that you do today? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, what I always come back to is both keeping in mind to always listen to other, to what other people are doing. I think it can be very easy as an artist or a creator to get so caught up in your own thoughts and so in your own head and, you know, go down rabbit holes and not come out. (laughs) And, uh, I think if you just remember to look up and to listen to, especially, you know, unless you're playing by yourself, oftentimes you're making music with other people. And so you have to listen to what they're doing in order to really lift the thing up to that next level. You know, I know this is definitely, we've talked a lot about John Leventhal. Um, I felt that way with him. He's a master at that, at, at, you know, when he's accompanying other people, like huge ears and listening and knowing exactly what little thing it needs uh, to make it better. Daniel Tashin, who I just made my new album with, is that way. Um, and yeah, every, all the way. But then it also goes all the way back to the beginning with in those jam years. It's it's about the community. It's about creating the thing together. Um, yeah, it's it's all about that for me. And uh, and then I would be I would be remiss to not mention one other teacher who we haven't discussed. Uh, her name is Diana Reapy. Um, she was my very first music teacher, uh, in elementary school all the way through junior high. And, um, she, in a way she really laid, laid that groundwork, um, to, to what's led me here. God bless those people who light the spark. Yes. Yes. Sarah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing the new album. Yeah, no, I feel like we could, I could talk for another hour about all this stuff. Uh, loved, loved chatting with you. Sarah Jarose. Her new album is called Polaroid Lovers. She'll be on tour for much of the first half of 2024. You can find all of the tour dates at sarahjarose.com. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Mm -hmm.